The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret history and little-known facts behind your favorite music, movies, TV shows, and more. We're two guys with too much free time on our hands. My name's Jordan Runtog. And I'm Alex Heigl. Jordan, what are we talking about today? Today, we are taking a look at Legally Blonde, and there's a sequel in the works that's been rumored to be out at some point during the spring, but alas, it's been held up due to countless production delays, many of them COVID-related. First, it was going to be out on Valentine's Day 2020, and then it was at some point this May, and now, unfortunately, it's delayed indefinitely. While writers Mindy Kaling and Dan Gore work on the script, so we hope that this episode will make up a little bit for that, for the, the missing piece of millennial blonde nostalgia in all of our hearts. What are they calling it? Does it have a working title? I think just Legally Blonde 3. Mm, the Secret of the Ooze. Legally <laughs> Blonde other famous 3. Blonde what Harder. Are... <laughs> Electric <laughs> <Yeah>. Boogaloo. <laughs> a Good Day to Blonde Hard. <laughs> um, Live Free or Blonde Hard. <laughs> <laughs> like 45 minutes later, we're here. Just, yeah, just pitching Mindy Kaling. I mean, can we get Mindy on? Hey, uh, Jamie, can we get Mindy on the phone? Thank you. That's our producer. Legally Blonde 3, back in the house. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Jordan, what do you what do you think about Legally Blonde? I just I think it's a great movie. It's just a smart satire about self-acceptance and challenging stereotypes. I mean, what's not to love? Elle Woods is smart, she's kind, and she's unapologetically who she is. I think it's great. What do you think about this movie? I think it's great. I, I agree. I was a little upset to see that a number of the people who worked on this went in to just make some absolute crap afterwards. Yeah. Um, but that is no fault of Legally Blondes. You can't reheat a souffle. I'm told. That's what all, that's what all the former Beatles said after they... Bummer. <laughs> Weird bummer. Uh, Jordan's going through some stuff, folks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, so we've already compared this to the Die Hard franchise and the breakup of the Beatles. Oh, boy. All right. Anyway, we're going to talk about the hilarious true story that inspired the film, Reese Witherspoon's nature documentary-style trips to Southern California sororities, Bruiser the Dog's connection with the Taco Bell dog, I know Mm -hmm. he's a personal favorite of yours, Heigl, the drunken origin of the bend and snap, the long-lost musical number, what happened to all of Elle's 60 outfits from the film, and finally, how this movie is actually indirectly responsible for saving someone's life. So, without further ado, here's everything you didn't know about Legally Blonde. So, for many reasons, the producers of Legally Blonde couldn't have picked a better performer to play the part of Elle Woods. Because not only is Reese Witherspoon supremely talented, but her background makes her uniquely qualified for this part. Because she's an Ivy League-educated debutante. She's from an old family. 
She claims that she's descended from a man named John Witherspoon, who signed the Declaration of Independence. And though this hasn't been verified by the Society of the Descendants of the Signers of the Declaration of Independence, which is a whole (laughs) thing, fairly certain that she definitely comes from some kind of like fresh off the Mayflower background because she's like a full-blown Southern Belle debutante who actually had a society coming out party, which is this whole, are you familiar with the whole coming out party phenomenon? Uh, I mean... I, I went to school in Virginia, uh, but it was Northern Virginia. So we, we sort of got all of the debutantes who made it that far north. Um, <laughs> that's such a fascinating subculture. Yeah, run us down what a debutante is, Jordan. Well, the whole coming out party is, a, is something that's done when women in that socioeconomic strata reach a certain age, I think 17, where they're basically old enough to start dating. And... Um, yeah, the more I talk about it and think about it, the more it kind of I'm reminded of like how it's weird. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it definitely seems like some kind of old medieval like bonding family ties with other strong families in the community sort of thing. Does the word debutante have a, a, a literal definition of like just is it a, a woman of a certain social status <sighs> or? Oh boy, it means from the French to mean female beginner, the age that they were old enough to be married, essentially. And the whole purpose of a coming out is to display them to bachelors from other families. Yes. It's like a bidding. It's like they're on the auction floor. It's weird. And <laughs> thankfully, I'm, I'm okay with saying that it's weird because Reese agrees. She has a yeah. quote where she said, it's a bizarre subculture. I can't even really tell you what it's about, but I do think it's really similar to the sorority culture, which again, mm-hmm. kind of in a funny way sort of prepared her for, for playing the part of Elwoods. She later goes on to say, in hindsight, it isn't really indicative of who I am and it isn't really representative of me, but you do a lot of things in high school that you don't really understand and why you're doing them. And she's also said that she's considered going back someday and making a documentary about that whole debutante social scene, which I would be super interested in seeing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, you know, I generally, I'm realizing that I generally like everything that she's involved in. I, I have no, I have no quarrel with Reese Witherspoon. I'm just coming around to that right now. Uh, anyway. So in addition to having this kind of very storied family history, much like Elle Woods, she's also extremely smart. Uh, she comes from an extremely highly educated family. Both of her parents are physicians. And Reese herself went to Stanford to study English literature. But during her years there, she started getting more and more acting jobs, and she found herself being called away from class on a regular basis, which caused some stress with her parents. And as she'd later say in an interview, it wasn't easy. I had to make a choice between Psych 101 and starring in a film opposite Paul Newman, Gene Hackman, Susan Sarandon, and James Garner. My parents didn't quite understand my decision, but to me, it was a no-brainer. Uh, she's talking yeah. about the 1998 movie Twilight, which is not to be confused with the you know, Twilight. Yeah, the Twilight. <laughs> yeah, well said, Reese. Yeah, I mean, it, starring opposite any one of those people she named, but all of them. It, what an yeah. incredible cast for a movie that I have no recollection of. Yep, does not exist for me. So she said, I never finished college but I finished Legally Blonde, which is great. Uh, and you said that uh, Olivia Newton said something similar about Greece, right? Yeah, yeah. Olivia Newton-John later said that she spent all of the years that you'd be in, you know, high school, doing high school dances and proms and stuff, uh, working in showbiz in Australia and England later on. And so Greece was her way of kind of having a little piece of that, which I always thought was cute. It's the next best thing. So, uh, speaking of another college person, we have to talk about Legally Blonde, the book. Uh, I thought this was an original screenplay. It was a book written by one Amanda Brown, published in 2001, inspired by her real-life experience at Stanford Law, uh, which she did not enjoy. Um, her dad, this is funny, her dad is named Jack E. Brown. He was a very prominent attorney. Um, he specialized in high technology litigation and was once listed by the National Law Journal as one of the most hundred, one of the hundred most influential lawyers in the U.S. Wow. Um, yeah, and his most prominent case was he represented Apple when they sued Microsoft in 1989 over Windows uh, it's called the look and feel case because they sued them over the icons and the, uh, the judge ended up ruling against Apple, holding that a visual element of an interface, for example, the recycle bin on the Windows screen, it only would infringe on a copyright if it looked exactly the same as another interface, i.e. Apple's trash basket. 
So you have a trash basket on maps and you have a recycle bin on windows and Apple sued over that and uh, lost. <laughs> so, but. And the dad of the author of Legally Blonde, Legally Blonde. was, who, who did he represent on it? Oh, he represented Apple. Okay. He was so on yeah, the was, was, successful side. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you win some, you lose some. Yeah. But I mean, to all intents and purposes, the woman who wrote this book, Amanda Brown, basically was Elle Woods. Her experience mm-hmm. at Stanford Law was was as you said not good yeah she said i wanted to go to stanford when i saw the mall <laughs> again <laughs> it was hilarious which is incredible it, again it's l yeah so when i went for my interview she said i checked out the polo store i checked out neiman's so i became myopically focused um <laughs> you know she's very sharp but uh still kind of stuck out for a number of reasons one she wrote letters to her friends on pink paper with a pink furry pen uh, kind of mocking her other classmates, like she wrote. She basically wrote the burn book from Mean Girls. Well, she was. Uh, they were really mean to her because she was so. She was like L. She had this big, you know, pink everything right. and this fluffy pen and everything. So she was just kind of like venting. She gave. She gave as good as she got. She called one of them a horrible trekkie. <laughs> but this is after the guy who just said go home. This is the person said go home and get married. So, yeah, like I said, she gave as good as she got. But 300 pages of these letters and her notes became the basis of the book, which she turned into a manuscript and submitted to lit agencies. And the pink paper won out in the end because her agent pulled this manuscript out of a slush pile of, of, of you know. Unsolicited it, submissions. Yeah, stuff that gets sent in. And it caught her eye because it was written on pink paper. What a uh, lesson. Be yourself. Yeah. Do your thing. It will get seen by the right people for exactly what it is and who you are. I think that's great. Yeah. And and she eventually left law school because she realized her true ambitions as a novelist. And she told the Stanford Alumni Magazine at one point, law school helped me decide what I wanted to do. Right. But there is a darker side to this. I was reading... <laughs> Uh, I was reading about this at the authorship of Legally Blonde and a few other of Brown's works, another one called Family Trust, are murky. Um, when the initial copyrights were filed for Legally Blonde and Family Trust, there's another woman's name listed, Bridget Kerrigan Thomas. This woman's dad, I believe, was also at the firm that Amanda Brown's dad was at. So they knew each other and they have they co-wrote, apparently, some of this stuff. But in this article that I was reading, there was some kind of a falling out, presumably over money, once this was optioned into a, a movie and you start talking about points, you start talking about all this other stuff. And the presupposition in the piece is that Brown paid off Kerrigan to kind of stop making noise about it. Um, 20 grand was a figure I heard floating around. And uh, NDAs were apparently signed, so like nobody actually can talk about it. But it was a fascinating uh, little slice of Arizona life. Um, she may not have yeah. graduated from Stanford Law, but it sounds like she got some good, some yeah, good exactly. Wow, that is interesting. I I didn't realize that. Wow. I wonder. You know what it was? I wonder if they were friends, and she was the person that Amanda Brown was writing these letters to, and their correspondence. It was like the back and forth that became the basis for this book. And then the friend she was writing to, this Bridget person, was like, "Well, wait a minute. Half of these letters are mine. It's a back and forth, and that, right. that's why it got messy." Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. On to happier pastors, Jordan. Yes, Amanda Brown. As I said earlier, she created the character of Elle Woods basically as a cartoon version of herself. And she named her Elle after Elle magazine, of course. Uh, But many of the incidents in the book and later the movie were taken from real life. Uh, Case in point, the scene where the character Enid says she's a liberal feminist who believes that the university is trying to oppress its female students with its subliminal messages of patriarchy with the word semester. Um, Instead, she believes the word should be changed to Theovester in order to be more inclusive and respectful to women. That was based on a real incident when I guess Amanda Brown at Stanford was trying to make friends and she went to a meeting of the women of Stanford Law and she heard this whole Ovester thing and she started laughing because she thought they were just joking and she realized that this is a quote from her, I realized everyone in the room took it very seriously so I didn't make any friends there. (laughs) And also the scene in Elle's Harvard admission video when she demonstrates how she incorporates law into her everyday life by holding a vote over which toilet paper brand for her sorority to get. 
This vote was actually based on a true story with the film's screenwriter, a woman by the name of Karen McCullough, and she said this happened in her own sorority. They had uh, votes for branded toilet paper to get. I, I guess they. the other thing was that they, like, didn't supply them with enough toilet paper, and so they basically would, like, give the sorority sisters activity points for going out and, like, scavenging rolls from, like, other office buildings on campus. God, what a weird culture. I never got near those people at all. Um, really? Wait, where'd you go again? JMU? George Mason. George Mason. Actually, it's, fu- it's funny, because uh, McCullough went to uh, James Madison, right. which is also in Virginia. But, uh, no, I went to GMU. Um, we didn't have much in the way of Greek life. Uh, I was busy. I was listening to jazz. <laughs> I was practicing jazz bass, Jordan. I was so super cool. No, I was uh, smoking weed in the woods. Um, I mean, I was at NYU where we didn't even have, I mean, we, we, I mean, there were obviously no fraternity houses. I think there were a couple fraternities. We didn't even have a football team. And they used to sell sweatshirts that said, uh, NYU football undefeated, which was pretty <laughs> That's, good. That for, makes me for like a bunch of art and, school kids. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me like NYU a little bit more. But um, so, Unlike Reese, uh, McCullough was actually in a sorority. She was an Alpha Gamma Delta at Delta. Alpha Gamma Delta. Uh, that's, a, that's my call sign in my Hummer. Uh, I'm surprised you haven't gotten my hick accent yet. She also wrote 10 Things I Hate About You. About uh, Also from a similar epistolary source. That movie was not actually pitched as a direct Shakespeare thing. It was based on her like diary and and stuff that she had written in high school and uh, Karen it, McCullough, it, I, the the Lily Blonde screenwriter. I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and her co-writer Kirsten Smith and um, yeah. So Ten Things I Hate About You is based on I think it was McCullough's high school diary where she was writing and it was actually the title comes from I think the diary or the book that she had was called Ten Things I Hate About Tom. And then they turned it into a screenplay, and then they realized, oh, we can hang this on the plot of The Taming of the Shrew. Um, I know that. Wow. Yeah. And, so two uh, beloved millennial yeah, school basic taking directly from the really writer's diaries. It, That's Really cool. knocked it out of the park. Yeah. And so you just mentioned, she said, uh, she told the James Madison University magazine that uh, the, their, her sorority was denied our toilet paper. So Why? I offered my sorority sisters activity points for stealing replacement roles from the administration building. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com. So the manuscript for Legally Blonde, this is really interesting. It was sent out to both book publishing houses and film studios on the same day. This is according to author Amanda Brown. That's rare. It was was rejected as a book at first, but it sparked Hmm. a bidding war for the movie rights, and MGM ended up coming out on top. 
And I think you mentioned this earlier. I the sounds like the book was self-published initially, and then after the movie came out and it became a huge deal, then it got picked up by a publisher and became you know a, a, a bigger deal. Um, and for the director, MGM hired a first-time 25-year-old Australian filmmaker named Robert Lukatic. Please tell us about the film that got him hired on this. Yeah, it's interesting because, again, he, he had never made a feature film before. The only thing that was on his resume was this 12-minute musical comedy short called, I have to say this carefully, Tiziana Buberini. About a supermarket checkout girl whose co-workers bully her because of her hairy upper lip. And this was a short that was screened at the Colorado Telluride Film Festival. And it was so well received that he had an agent, a manager, and a studio deal within 40 minutes of the screening. Isn't that... that's Good Lord. I, yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I, I went to film school and that's like the kind of thing that you just that's would dream about. Of. Yeah, that's, that's nuts. Uh, I was just Tell us a Karen. little bit about this guy, yeah. Oh, well, boy, downward spiral. I mean, maybe not. He's probably made he's probably made more money than God doing this kind of stuff. But he had just became a complete yeoman um, <laughs> doing the sort of ditch digging work of the aughts era rom-com glut. Win a date with Tad Hamilton, Monster-in-Law starring Jane Fonda and Jennifer Lopez. The Ugly Truth, Killers, you know, Drek. Yeah, so checkered past from the heights of Tiziana Buberini to the lows of Gerard Butler rom coms. Wither Robert Ludekick. <laughs> but we do have him to thank for getting Reese Witherspoon in the role as Elle Woods. Yes, because initially, the studio wanted Tori Spelling. Which I can actually totally see, but she declined. Yeah. And this is all really ironic because according to the script, Tori Spelling's house was across the street from Elle Wood's childhood home. And I don't know if this was added in afterwards as like a joke or if it was a reference to Aaron Spelling's gargantuan house, which is the largest house in Los Angeles County. And we talked about this on the Full House episode. It set the record for the most expensive home ever after being sold to Petro heiress Petra Ecclestone in 2019 for $120 million. Yeah. So I, I don't know if that was just like a, a joke about the almost casting or just Elle Woods is the neighbor to the biggest house in Los Angeles and just the way to telegraph that she comes from obscene wealth. Maybe a little bit of both. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> next in line after Tori Spelling, Christina Applegate, which I can also totally see, but she also turned it down. Uh, and as she would explain to Entertainment Tonight in 2015, she was really wary of playing another stereotypical ditzy blonde character after all of her years on on Fox's Married with Children, basically playing that same role. And she later regretted it. She said, what a stupid move that was, right? Mm. But then again, Reese deserved that, she said. She did a much better job than I ever could. So that's her life. That's her path. The alternate casting for this also just goes down the list of who's who female actresses in the, in the late 90s. Um, Charlize Theron, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, oh. Alicia Silverstone, Catherine Heigl, No Relation, <laughs> Mila Jovovich, Jennifer Love Hewitt, another brunette oh. I had an enormous crush on as a child. Yeah. Um, and the producer for this movie, Mark Platt, who there's a funny anecdote about him later, he pitched Britney Spears at one point. I guess his kids were into her, and uh, but McCullough shot that one down. I love this. Jennifer Coolidge said she'd uh, heard rumors that um, Courtney Love was up for the role uh, that she plays in the movie which seems wildly mismatched, but Kathy Najimy as well, which would have been great. Kathy Najimy's hilarious. Courtney Love, apparently, and we'll get to this a little bit later, I guess an early version of the script was a lot different and was a lot more, it was described as basically being in the like gross out American yeah. pie, old school type realm. So with Courtney Love in that version of this movie, I could almost see that. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll buy that. But yeah, as if that laundry list of actresses were, was not enough to convince you, turns out the studio did not want Reese, and Reese also didn't want Legally Blonde. Yeah, it was this director who, before he was put out to pasture making a mid-2000s rom-com dreck, uh, he pressed for Reese Witherspoon to play Elle after having watched her act in the movie Election, which I just saw recently for the first time in a long time. That is a great movie. Oh, it's fantastic. He said, I wanted someone with gravitas and brains, but the studio MGM really didn't want her actually 
because of the movie election, because she played a character that was pretty much the opposite of Elle Woods, Mm -hmm. which seems weird to me because she'd also done Cruel Intentions and she'd also done Pleasantville, which seemed perfectly in line with Legally Blonde and Elle Woods. And, you know, in addition to the fact that she's an actress and conceivably could play different personality types. Yeah. But, uh... Yeah, it's just weird to me that they really were resistant to her. But in Reese's words, the studio thought she was a, quote, shrew. And this is uh, in an interview with The Hollywood Reporter in 2015. She said, my manager finally called and said, you've got to go meet the studio head. I was told to dress sexy. Oh, yeah. So she adopted a fake Valley Girl accent and answered questions about her life in a sorority, which never happened but she made up stories about a wild youth involving mixers and formals and clam bakes and all those other like southern sorority stuff that is a complete fiction but she convinced the studio head that she had sufficient experience to pull this all off which i just find all of this so deeply offensive but and at the end of it she goes acting (laughs) uh she later said Oh, I've heard it all. I've been told that I'm not sexy enough, not pretty enough, not smart enough, and even that I'm not tall enough to get a specific role. And yes, I've been told that I was too blonde, which essentially means all of those things rolled into one. So making Legally Blonde was my own private campaign against a lot of prejudices and stereotypes. But as you said, she actually initially didn't want to do this because this was just a few years after Clueless, and she was worried that it would come across as like a lame knockoff of that movie. But the producers eventually convinced her by telling her that they envisioned Elle as a role model for little girls to watch and think, I can do anything. And Reese had just given birth to her daughter, Ava, around this time. So that was a very powerful motivator. She wanted to be both a role model for her daughter and many other daughters, too. But it's kind of sad because this shoot was actually kind of a slog for Reese because Ava apparently kept her up all night screaming and throwing up and stuff and so she had to be on the set at like 7am and she would later say you're supposed to be this bubbly energetic California preppy who's smiling all the time and I kept thinking I'm gonna kill myself I'm gonna (laughs) kill myself I'm never gonna make it but she did and we were all the better for it Yes. But she also, she really went beyond the pale for this role. She she basically approached it, as you said earlier, like a nature documentary. Like an um, anthropological study. Yeah, she spent a lot of time in Beverly Hills uh, watching women eating and shopping to get a better idea of how to act in the role. She sat in on <laughs> classes at Loyola, and she hung out with sorority girls at the University of Southern California. So she and Jessica Cuffiel, who plays uh, Margot, took out an entire sorority and um, bought them all margaritas for the entire night while uh, the two actresses only drank water and took notes. And Caulfield tells this story that uh, the drinks start to come over for the table and, and she reaches for one and Reese grabs her hand and is like, no, we're only drinking water. We're here to observe. <laughs> Which feels a tad <laughs> creepy to me. But yeah, she got, she picked up stuff from the sorority people. Yeah, it's like a like Jane Goodall being like <laughs> absorbed into into this community of uh, they taught her uh, little phrases and mannerisms, and one of them was that instead of saying "What's up," you apparently have to say "Wasabi" because they identify as the quote sushi crowd. And Reese told him Entertainment Weekly in 2001, I went to dinner with them, and she said it's sort of like an anthropological study. You learn what they eat, how they behave, how they take care of their young, (laughs) that sort of thing. (laughs) Seriously, though, I've learned that people don't know what their worst characteristics are. It's inherent in our nature that we don't know what in ourselves is abhorrent to other people. So it's really easy to infiltrate people's lives. They showed all sides of themselves. This is Hannibal Lecter talking to Clarice. <laughs> Good Lord, Reese. My God. Very, very I'm, seriously. I'm frightened by her now. Um, Harvard wasn't even Elle's intended school. This is funny. The number of schools that refused <laughs> to participate uh, in this to production. To participate in this, yeah. I mean, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, I mean, Elle's big goal in the movie is famously to go to Harvard Law after she's dumped by her scumbag boyfriend who doesn't take her seriously. And in the original version of the script, Elle wanted to go to Stanford, like her creator, Amanda Brown. But Stanford's admission disapproved of the script and how they were worried they'd come off in the film, which makes sense. So then they were going to go to the University of Chicago, but they also refused... Specifically because of the scene where Elle's professor makes advances towards her, which, again, makes a lot of sense. I can see why your school would be associated with that. But Harvard was apparently fine with all this. 
Um, <laughs> and what makes this really interesting about L going to Harvard is that Mark Zuckerberg started his freshman year at Harvard in 2002 at the same time L was starting her second year of law school. She was the class of 2004, which means that she's conceivably one of the very first Facebook users back when it was just restricted to Harvard emails. So that's that's interesting. Something, yeah. yeah that's something we're, we're getting. We're getting somewhere. Um, Harvard allowed their name to be used, but they did not allow production to shoot in their hallowed halls, which they kind of famously don't like to do. So instead, all of the campus filming took place at Rose City High School, the University of Southern California, and Caltech. Yeah, this is one of my favorite bits. Uh, I will take this one. Caltech supplied some very important ingredients for this movie. The yes, frat boys. The frat side of things. Uh, Jordan has this captioned with a very excellent beat on the frat. Um, <laughs> To heighten the reality of this film, the producers hired real-life frat bros to be a part of it. In the opening credit sequence, you see a blonde woman ride her bike past a bunch of these frat guys out on the lawn. And these were real Caltech frat brothers who were basically a last-minute addition to the scene in the film. They were in the middle of a, an initiation rite referred to as Grease Frosh, which consists of dousing each other in shortening oil... <laughs> Short day, like lard and oil, olive oil, presumably. Both? I don't know. I don't know how slicky, I don't know how oily you got to get to play grease frosh. And okay, so they get all greased. <laughs> that word is just so funny to me. They get all greased up, just real greasy boys. And then they have a race to see who can carry a freshman successfully from one end of a field or this lawn to another in the fastest time. I don't know if prizes are awarded. I don't know if it's just for bragging rights. But these guys just wandered onto the set. Imagine, your director, Robert, looted whatever. You've come off your weird boob movie. Your career is laid out in front of you like the yellow brick road. <laughs> this is your first your, feature film. You've got the world is your oyster. And a bunch of greasy frat guys <laughs> wander into your shot. What do you do? You make it work. And that's why he's... Making the big money for Gerard Butler rom-coms. No one remembers. Uh, he just brought him into the shot. Um, he just said, do you guys want to be in the movie? He literally said, do you guys want to be in the movie? Uh, Karen McCullough said they were really there. They were really drunk. They kept trying to ruin the shot. So the easiest solution was to invite them into it. Um, I was captivated by the phrase grease frosh. So I did a little Googling. Uh, that is specific to the Page House at Caltech, but there's another famous greasy freshman tradition uh, belonging to our neighbors from the north. At Queen's University in Ontario, there is a tradition of making freshmen climb a greased goalpost supposedly stolen from the University of Toronto while your prospective brothers pelt you with stuff like trash and fruit and so forth uh this started in the late 50s and reached its inevitable conclusion in 1983 when several students broke ribs and came down with hypothermia as a result of falling off of this pole and being outside in freaking ontario doing this presumably they were also naked to yeah. some extent i think that's um, a given with all these shenanigans I think the hashtag for this episode should be greasy freshman <laughs> grease frosh yeah hashtag grease, grease frosh. frosh anyway more on to college. While we're talking about college, like campus life, Jordan. Yes. So shooting on a real college campus was definitely easier than doing it on a backlog, despite your errant, drunk, frat bros, greasing men. men wandering into your shot. But the film was supposed to take place in early fall in Boston, where it's nice and cool. This was Los Angeles. It was hot. And Reese later said that she was sweating buckets in her belted sweater with the shirt buttoned all the way up. And then she had the opposite problem when they were filming the scene where Elle gets dumped by her boyfriend, Warner. Uh, it was unusually cold that night in Los Angeles, and they had the CGI out the air coming out of her mouth, which is up there with, like, rotoscoping Neil Young's, like, cocaine. Out yeah, that sounds really tedious and really awful. I love when they have to 
fake stuff that's shot in California and other places because what it usually entails is people carrying bags of leaves around. <laughs> in Halloween, which is set in Illinois, but shot in, I think, Pasadena, they literally had like a few garbage bags of leaves that they would oh. scatter in into shots because there's, but there's also like palm trees in the shots too. And then they had to go around and gather them back up and when preserve them. them the probably. Yeah, so they, they also had to do this in, for, for Legally Blonde. Like they had to paint the tree, like leaves brown and they would have people up in the trees and dropping them as, as the <laughs> people pass into the shot. Oh, I love it. The movie business, folks, where dreams come true. <laughs> that being on your IMDb. Yeah, through Leaf leaves. Wrangler. Yeah. <laughs> Is that a union gig? Um, okay, let's get into Warner Huntington III, played by Matthew Davis. Yes, we mentioned the really quite brutal breakup scene a moment ago. Uh, man, Warner Huntington III, what a great millennial villain, spineless, arrogant. He dumps Elle because she's too much like Marilyn Monroe and not enough like Jackie Kennedy, which is offensive for so many reasons, not least of which Marilyn Monroe was a brilliant, well-read woman, and the whole dumb blonde thing was a character, much like Jane Mansfield and Diana Doris and all these famous blondes in cinema, all supremely intelligent women. Um, I love Mar Marilyn Monroe so much. Have you ever heard that story? One of my favorite Marilyn Monroe stories, a little tangent, but I just love the story so much. She was out walking early one morning. Have you ever heard this with a, a friend not, of hers? No, go ahead. It was early one morning, like people were just leaving to go to work and she was out walking with a friend of hers and no one noticed. It was Marilyn walking down the street. It was the strangest thing. It was just like she could kind of move around and her friend commented on this and Marilyn said, do you, do you want to see her? Do you want to see Marilyn? And her friend said, yeah. And she just completely, just with minute body movements and just slightly, just slight changes in the way she carried herself all of a sudden, it was just absolutely, she was just electric. Everybody noticed her. All of a sudden, all the heads turned. She didn't do anything, you know, very visible or obvious. It was just this slightly different way she carried herself and a slightly different energy. I always loved, I just thought that was so incredible. That's that great. She, Good I, for I just Marilyn. think that shows her brilliance that she could just turn it on like that. I just think that's so interesting. Um, really interesting one. There's a new documentary on Netflix called, I think it was something like the Marilyn Monroe tapes or something and just about hmm. her inner life. It's uh, very interesting. I always liked her. Anyway, I, I, I want to clear that up. I hate, I hate it. Yeah. I said that to her for a ah, bunch of reasons. But we Marilyn. appreciate the advocacy. Yes. Um, but yes, the character of Warner Huntington III was played by actor Matthew Davis, who says he based his performance on then-presidential candidate George W. Bush. Actually, this movie was filmed in the midst of the whole voter recount crisis, so uh, fun times. Yeah, great. <laughs> Moving right along. Yeah. Matthew Davis had something of a rough time on the set because he apparently had a huge long-standing crush on Reese Witherspoon, like dating back to when he was a teenager and he'd seen her act in one of her very first roles, a movie called A Far Off Place. And so this was like a deep-seated thing. And he was extremely nervous. And in his own words, he was just a bumbling idiot on the set to the degree that the producers had to pull him aside and ask him if he was all right and basically <laughs> told him to get it together. And so eventually he could bear it no longer and he confessed his crush to Reese, who at the time was married to Ryan Phillippe. And according to Matthew Davis, her reaction to him coming clean was cordial, but professional. She was like, that's so sweet. Okay, let's work on the scene. Oof. Which, I mean, I guess I don't really know what I expected her to say, but. Yeah, we call that down bad on Twitter. <laughs> this guy, and then what? He just, he immediately redirects all of his attention to Selma Blair. Yeah, I guess he he immediately, I, I guess his, his rebound crush was on his co-star, Selma Blair. And he said in 2017, I developed a crush on her at the time, but she was with someone else too. I think she was dating the guy from Rushmore, actor Jason Schwartzman. But he was coming around and I was kind of like, who's this guy? So yeah, Matthew Davis, striking out left and right on the set of Legally Blonde, damn. I, you mentioned Ryan Phillippe. I think this is so funny. Alana Yubach, who plays Serena, says that she pitched Reese the idea of having Ryan Phillippe in the movie as a like a Judge Judy style celebrity judge. <laughs> and, and she was like, yeah, we can have him on billboards and it can just kind of be like an Easter egg in the film to have your husband be this celebrity judge in the world of the movie. And Witherspoon replied, 
Alana, no one's going to believe that my husband's a judge. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> Reese Witherspoon just murdering people left and right. Then and there, you could tell weren't going to last. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of Summer Blair... Summer Blair played the role of Vivian, Elle's rival for Warner's affections, but they come around and end up as friends. Uh, the role was originally offered to Chloe Savini, New York it girl Chloe Savini. She told the Daily Beast in 2014 that she turned down the part to do a thriller called Demon Lover, nope. which was shooting at the same time. Folks, Demon Lover? Anyone? She later admitted that she regretted the decision, obviously, saying that she didn't realize the potential of Legally Blonde at the time. I saw that you wrote this, and I I went to my demon lover, <laughs> the, the internet, and this movie sounds batshit. A French corporation goes head-to-head with an American web media company for the rights to a 3D manga pornography studio resulting in a power struggle that culminates in violence and espionage. Also stars Gina Gershon. So that's Demon Lover, 2002, the movie that Chloe Savini turned down Legally Blonde for. Anyway, uh, Reese Witherspoon and Selma Blair were friends after doing Cruel Intentions together a few years back, and Reese told Entertainment Tonight while on the set in 2000 that she lived across the street from Blair during filming. She said she'd come over. When I'd get locked out of the house, she'd have my key and stuff. So we're really close, and it's been great because we get to hang out. She's been my friend since Cruel Intentions. I would act with her any day. I love that. I love stars being friends in real life. It's my little movie treat, just for me <laughs> and many others. Speaking of movie stars, finally, we get to talk about Bruiser. Yes, you know, I know you love movie stars being friends in real life, but there's something that I know you love even more than that, and that's Taco Bell. (laughs) But yes, speaking of Elle's nearest and dearest, we got to give a shout out to her chihuahua, Bruiser, whose real name was Mooney, and Mooney was kind of a star. He starred in a music video with Cher, as well as in episodes of the TV show Three Sisters and Providence, but he lived with the Taco Bell dog, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whose name was Gidget, and... He died in 2016 at the really very old age of 18. I thought that those small dogs tend to not live small very dogs long. Live, no, small oh, dogs live, live longer. Time? Big oh, dogs are okay. the ones, yeah, like oh. Great Danes only live like eight years. Uh, Gidget, voiced by Carlos Alizraki. Apologies. He also voiced Spyro the Dragon and Rocco in Rocco's Modern Life. Wait, the voice of the Taco of Bell Gidget. dog yes. is the voice of Rocco. Yes. What? Yep. I didn't know that until this yep. very moment. And, I'm glad. and Deputy Car yeah, and Deputy Carlos from Reno nine one one. Oh, and Mr. Weed from Family Guy. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they, I man, I love doing this voice actor stuff because then you just find out that this wow. person has been in like ten thousand different things. Yeah, so we mentioned a little we nodded a little bit earlier about this film was kind of made and greenlit sort of in the gross out comedy era. I, I don't know. How is that era viewed today? Poorly? Uh, memory hold, I would say. Yeah, I feel like people, well, I don't know, maybe people talk about it, maybe people remember it, but yeah, it was just that rare, just, it's a beautiful moment in time when you could just let terrible scatological stuff do all your <laughs> writing for you. Yeah, so Jessica Caulfield told the New York Post, what we now know is Legally Blonde and what it began as are two completely different films. It transformed from non-stop zingers that were very adult in nature to this universal story of overcoming adversity by being oneself. There's something about Jennifer Caulfield, we'll, get a, we'll touch on this later, is that she remembers there being a totally different ending of the movie that was originally written that the screenwriters yeah. claimed never happened. So I tend to take her stories with a little bit of grain of salt. (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins. Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. 
See new things. Try new things. Go back centuries while living in the moment. Forge new paths while discovering old ones. Pedal, paddle, and paint while trekking, tasting, and tailoring experiences that transform you into a better version of yourself. Immerse yourself in the world by activating your mind, your heart, and your body on a river cruise exclusively from Avalon Waterways. Save with limited time offers at avalonwaterways.com. Avalon is cruising. Elevated. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Time to talk about probably the most iconic part of the film, which is the bend and snap. Yes, and, you know, as with the best things in the, in the world, came about one night in a bar. <laughs> after work. Uh, screenwriters Karen McCullough and Kirsten Smith were trying to work out a B-plot for the movie. They were pitching all sorts of other crimes. You know, it's a legal movie. A cr- another crime would be a good idea. Like Jennifer Coolidge's store being robbed. And nothing felt right tonally. It all just felt too dark for a movie that was, you know, really pretty light. Uh, but producers really wanted to give Jennifer Coolidge more to do. And she's Jennifer Coolidge. Why wouldn't you want her to do more? And that's when McCullough posed the immortal question, what if Elle shows Paulette a move she can do to get the UPS guy? And suddenly they're both on their feet at this L.A. bar demonstrating what would become known far and wide as the bend and snap. And as Kristen Smith put it, it was a spontaneous invention. It was a completely drunken moment in a bar. And it's... As you said, it's gone on to become one of the most beloved scenes in the movie. But what we now know is actually an abbreviated version of of what was supposed to be a full musical number, which I'm really fascinated by. The cast apparently spent a month working on a whole song and dance version of this nail salon scene. And Heigl, who was it choreographed by? Tony Basil. (laughs) Mickey. uh, She did all these sorts of movies in the 60s with Elvis. I think she... Tony Basil's amazing. She, um... She's a legend. I love her so she's, much. She's known widely for Mickey as like a kind of one hit wonder. But first of all, she's from Philly. I didn't know. Um, yeah. And she just did uh, everything. She did the monkeys film head. She's in that. She's in uh, she's Pajama an easy Party. rider. She's an easy rider. Yeah. Um, she choreographed the uh, once in a lifetime video for talking heads. Oh, uh, yeah. with, so she's worked with David Byrne, David's Byrne and Bowie. She choreographed uh, a music video and two tours for well, the Bowie. Diamond Dog tour, right? Diamond Dogs and Glass Spider in 87. She worked with Bette Midler. She worked with Sinatra? Tina Turner. Yeah, it's nuts, dude. American Graffiti. Peggy Sue what? Got Married. That wow. Thing You Do. My Best Friend's Wedding. Uh, Legally Blonde 2. Uh, I think Charlie... Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think she did the like hullabaloo yep. cutaway thing with Leo. Wow. She's so cool. She's awesome. You got to Google. Um, there's like a clip of her. If you, I, I think it still comes up if you look up like Tony Basil dance studio where she's like 100 years old and still can like do all the like rerun pop and lock and moves. In, and she's like doing it in her dance studio surrounded by a bunch of 20 somethings. She's like, I think it has a legit claim to being one of the pioneers of breakdancing. Right? Yeah. Like, I think she worked with, I forget the troupe or the organization. The Lockers. Like, was that the Locker? Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. She's a whole, that, she's a podcast in herself. I just think she's got the most interesting life story. She's amazing. Yeah, we should do that. She's one of the seven original Lockers. Wow. God, Tony so cool. Basil rules. Yeah. Um, all right. 
I love that. I love that. <laughs> so the, so somewhere there's a musical, there's a musical version of this scene that she choreographed and they cut it. Uh, Witherspoon said it just felt odd because there was just one musical sequence. But when the Legally Blonde musical came out in 2007, that number was included. So you can see it in some form if you're going to see that musical. Uh, Jennifer Coolidge has described herself as a bad dancer Aww. and uh yeah she had trouble with the dance with this uh the dance routine that they were learning and um tony basil got brutally honest with her at one point uh she said jennifer you need to learn this dance number and do your very best because even if you're trying to do your very best you will still be the worst <laughs> Oh, I love it so much. Yeah, there's a the notion that this movie was like semi-musical is kind of interesting to me because the other thing that this producer had done right around this time, he's gone on to do a boatload of stuff, a guy named Mark Platt. Uh, he had done Josie and the Pussycats. And there's a, a line in Legally Blonde that people have interpreted as a uh, wink to Josie and the Pussycats because she says... Whoever would say, in Legally Blonde, she says, the line is, whoever would think orange is the new pink must be seriously disturbed. And that is the nefarious plot at the heart of Josie and the Pussycats, that the corporation is trying to brainwash teenagers into thinking that orange is the new pink. So, but speaking of Jennifer Coolidge. Yeah, my favorite part of all the Jennifer Coolidge stuff is that she apparently loved the UPS guy for real which is adorable. She told the New York Post, I had a crush on Bruce Thomas, who played the UPS man, but he was married and had a beautiful wife and children, so I had to shut that off. I didn't have to act or get excited when he walked in. It was all true to life. That is adorable. I'm picturing her character on White Lotus. Oh. oh. Yeah, she's really the best. You know who's also the best? Raquel Welch. Heigl, lay your Raquel Welch anecdote on us. So Raquel Welch plays the ex-wife of Brooke's dead husband. And Anthony Richmond, who was the cinematographer on this film, basically said that she came in knowing how she wanted to be lit. She was just giving directions on how she was to be lit in this scene. Apparently, she came in with a hat, this big black straw hat that she was like, I need to wear this. Uh, and the inside of the hat on the brim had a second layer of white straw. So it was a two-tone hat. So that being lit from the bottom... It would reflect off of the underside of this brim and light her face better. She basically created what's called a bounce board to move lighting around. You do it in professional photo shoots and, and in film. So if you take nothing else from Raquel Welch being amazing, the fact that she jury rigged a hat to give her better lightning and came in and started telling the lighting director on this film <laughs> about her specific needs. Um, we love Raquel Welch on this podcast. Yes, so. we do. Continuing on. Now we are on to Jordan's favorite bit of the podcast, which is pedantic <laughs> pointing out of inaccuracies. Yes. It's I say that with love. Least favorite part of the show where I poke <laughs> holes in the script and talk all about the ways that it stretches reality just a little bit too far. There's a great article on insider.com that talks about all the things that Legally Blonde got wrong about law school. And here are some of them now. Uh, the admissions video, Elle famously records a video that she submits to Harvard for their application process. Unfortunately, Harvard expects a written personal statement and not a video. Apparently, the real Harvard Law actually plays this clip of her admissions video at their orientation and says, you know, just FYI, this is not how we make our decisions. <laughs> so that's fun. Um, the internship that Elle gets, she gets an internship from Professor Callahan. As a freshman law student, this is extremely unlikely. Most law schools restrict how many hours that their first-year students can work, so as a result, there are very few first-year students that can have an internship or an externship. I've never heard of an externship, but I guess they can't have one, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> Uh, and then finally, the courtroom scene. Actual law students say that there is no way a first-year law student would ever be allowed to defend someone in a courtroom. So, those you know, they said that about Joe Pesci too, and uh, he triumphed. So, it's just if you believe, if you believe enough. Uh, <laughs> I want to know. I want to know. I want to see like a grim cinema verite study of like a Joker-style mentally deranged person who is like trying to defend themselves in a lawsuit, having only seen Legally Blonde and um, My Cousin, cousin Vinny. Vinny. <laughs> <laughs> but they're like fixated. They're like, no, I can do this. Uh, anyway, I own that idea. Um, <laughs> this is a verbal copyright. 
if anyone wants to produce that, you have my Twitter handle. Uh, so we talked about this movie kind of getting chopped up um, or changed in the in the making, but um, the ending originally was completely different. Um, originally, it ended on the steps of the courthouse just after Elle won her case, and she and her love interest in the movie, Luke Wilson's Emmett, they share a big old kiss on the steps, big old romantic moment. Uh, and then they cut to Elle and Vivian starting their own blonde legal defense club at Harvard. Uh, but they cut the kiss because they felt an admiral. I like this. They felt it undercut the whole point of the movie. Um, McCullough said at Vulture Festival in 2015, it was just kind of a weak ending because the movie isn't a rom-com. It wasn't about their relationship. And test audiences, and laudably, test audiences usually f- everything up. But these, t- <laughs> uh, these test yeah. audiences were like, hey, no. We want to see her grow professionally and succeed on her own terms. So they rewrote the ending to end with the graduation scene where she's giving the keynote, add the subtitles. I love that. I love that so much. One of the rare instances in which test audiences improved something. (laughs) I guess there was... um... Reese has some onset photos from this lost ending on the steps of the courthouse, the kiss that she posted on social media for one of the anniversaries of Legally Blonde recently. So you can see glimpses of it, but unless it's a special feature on one of the DVDs or something, yeah, I think it's a a lost scene. But, and we alluded to this earlier, there was rumored to be another ending in this movie. That is, if you believe the tale told by two actresses and not the screenwriters, the actress Jessica Caulfield, who plays the sorority sister Margot in the film, she gave an interview to the New York Times in 2021 for their extremely thorough anniversary piece. And in this story, she described an alternate ending to the movie that suggested that Elle and Vivian were more than friends. Uh, to quote Caulfield, the first ending was Elle and Vivian in Hawaii in beach chairs, drinking margaritas and holding hands. The insinuation was either they were best friends or they'd gotten together romantically. And another actress, Alana Ubach, who you mentioned earlier, plays Serena, claims to have seen the same ending, but the screenwriters say that the scene never existed. Uh, Karen McCullough told Entertainment Weekly, It made me sad to see people mourning something that never existed and being sad that it was taken from them. So I want to clear that up. Don't be sad. Never existed. <laughs> Speaking of stuff that didn't make it into the film, apparently they wanted to have Judge Judy in here, which is when the aforementioned Aww. attempt to get uh, Ryan Phillippe in as the judge failed. Um <laughs> And yeah, so there's some funny things that have trickled out about the like sort of originally raunchier cut of this movie. Jessica Caulfield says she remembers one line that got cut as uh, Serena saying, what's the one thing that always makes us feel better no matter what? And the answer is cunnilingus. So that feels out of place in the finished product. But so uh, this is wild. A lot of this material that was actually cut was from uh, the actress Tane McClure, who plays Elle's mom. And it's funny that all the raunchy stuff that was cut came from her, considering how she got the part. The casting director for Legally Blonde uh, is a guy named Joseph Middleton, and he had cast her as a stripper in the movie Go. So she said that when she went to the Legally Blonde audition, he was like, hey, I recognize you. I don't know where it's from, though. And she says, I'll tell you after the audition. So she auditions, and she subsequently, she tells him, uh, you cast me as a stripper in this movie. And he he said, oh, good thing you told me afterwards. I would not have cast you. <laughs> Getting back to the original point about the end of the movie, test audiences didn't like the original ending, so producers had to film a new one at the very last minute. And I mean very last minute, because the cast had already moved on to new projects. And so this new graduation scene where Elle's giving the keynote address was shot in England where she was filming the importance of being earnest. And funnily enough, both Reese and Luke Wilson wore wigs in the scene because Reese had cut her hair shorter to be in the movie The Ports of Being Earnest, and Luke had shaved his head for the Royal Tenenbaums, as as we previously discussed. Uh, Yeah, the line that he says, how do you think I'd look with blonde hair has been interpreted as a nod to Owen Wilson, who's his brother (laughs) who is blonde. I actually did. I never put that together. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, the opening sequence of the movie, when you see Elle brushing her hair from the back, that woman is a stand-in because it was shot after they shot the movie and Reese had already moved on. But Reese had 40 different hairstyles throughout the movie, which is a new one in almost every scene. Director Robert Luketic referred to her ever-changing hair as the hair that ate Hollywood. Uh, She also had 30 scarves and apparently 60 outfits. And Reese got to keep 
Every damn one of them. Good for her. She made Power out like a bandit. Move. Yes. She had it written into her contract that she got to keep all 60 of Elle's outfits. Now, I actually, I have to admit, I don't know if that's both Legally Blonde 1 and 2, or if that's mm. just counting Legally Blonde 1. Uh, Jamie, the- uh, Jamie, can we get the wardrobe people from uh, Legally Blonde 1 and 2? And 2, yeah, get 2 just in case. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. <laughs> In an interview with Hollywood.com, she admitted that she obtained all this wardrobe not really for sentimental reasons, but more to keep them from being sold on eBay. She said, it really bothers me. Imagine some sicko in Wisconsin smelling the seams. She's not wrong. No. That's what would happen to that. It creeps me out. So it's all in my closet, and one day my daughter can play with it. And uh, yeah, like I said, she had got all the outfits from the sequel, Legally Blonde 2, Red, White, and Blonde in 2003. And she says that all of the Elle Woods outfits are on a special storage unit, and this is her quote, finely preserved between tissue paper. To quote Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones, it belongs in a museum, and I'm glad this is the next best thing. (laughs) But she, I guess, busted out some of the outfits in 2016 for the movie's 15th anniversary when she threw a little Elle Woods fashion show uh, on social media and got to try some of those outfits on, and we all got to see them, which was great. Yeah, and speaking of other uh, heartwarming things that came out of this movie, the influence of this film is, I you know, I would I would describe it as incalculable. <laughs> incalculable? I still can't. I feel like that's I can't the say that office. Word. I would describe the influences of this, of this film as far-reaching. I would describe the influence of this film as inescapable. I would describe the influence of this film as lugubrious. Sorry, I'm really just making these bad. I like trying to make Jordan laugh and I ruin his day when he has to edit them later. (laughs) Just me riffing poorly. So yeah, the influence of Legally Blonde lives on in the hearts of the many women who were inspired to apply to law school thanks on the film. And anyone trying to, you know, move past the stereotypes of the blonde or of... of Any stereotypes, the, really. The wealthy, I, wealthy well, yeah. white women, I guess. <laughs> uh, but in, in an interview on the Today Show in 2018, Reese said that she still loves that character and will always be special to her because she said, quote, I've had more young women come up to me and say, I went to law school because of Elle Woods. It's very incredible to see how long movies can last and how important they can be to young people generation after generation. So that same year, there's a reporter named Lucy Ford who was interviewing Reese, Mindy Kalin, and Oprah Winfrey. And Oprah Winfrey. We should have put her first. (laughs) Everyone comes after Oprah. Uh, She was interviewing them at a press junket for A Wrinkle in Time, which... um, But in the middle of this interview, she gave Witherspoon a copy of a 15,000-word dissertation that she wrote on Legally Blonde titled Legally Blonde post-feminism and the reimagination of the strong female character and this reporter lucy ford told reese that she watched the movie about 800 times while writing this paper and it's such a delightful clip reese is visibly moved and and she says thank you that really touches my heart as it should that's bananas but it gets even better so this film has obviously made a difference in so many people's lives but it also may very well have saved a life. That's what one viewer says, at least. Screenwriter Karen McCullough told Entertainment Weekly that she received an email from a man who was, quote, really depressed and was about to hurt himself when a friend called and asked him to go dancing. He initially didn't want to go and said no, but then after he hung up the phone, he remembered the line from Legally Blonde, exercise gives you endorphins, endorphins make you happy. So he called the friend back, went dancing, had a great time, his mood improved, And he wrote the screenwriter a note saying, that line saved my life. And the writers had no idea the impact that, you know, this movie or that line would end up having. And the writer, Karen McCullough, says, what an offhand line to end up being so meaningful to someone. That blew my mind. I thought that's very nice. It's a nice, a nice note to end on for this. This this is an incredibly, this is a very wholesome episode. Yeah. Um, This movie, it saves lives. But it's also responsible for putting more lawyers into the world, so we'll call it a draw. <laughs> so we, we, made, we made it to the very yeah, we made it this far without making a lawyer joke. Oh man, I've just been looking up sequel names to do riffs on. Um, <laughs> I like Too Blonde, Too Furious. That's good. That's really um, good. Yeah. And on a lawyer joke, that is all I got. What else can you say about this? Really sweet. 
really pure, really positive, really warm film. Can't wait for the third one to come. Hopefully sooner rather than later, but you can't rush perfection. Until next time, I'm Jordan Runtug. And I'm Alex Seigel. Thank you so much for listening. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.